Thank you, Greg, for leading us in worship and for those of you that served with him. Thank you, young men, for taking up the offering. Once again, I appreciate you being here this morning. I know there's other places that you could be here, other things that you'd be doing, but I'm grateful that you're here today. hope you have a Bible with you, and if you do, I hope would invite you to open it up with me to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. And then also when you came in, if you got one of those bulletins on the back of that, there'll be some notes if you want to reference that or use that during our time together in the Word. So Exodus chapter 14 is where we're going to be at in a few moments. We've been going through a series of lessons from the book of Exodus on what it looks like to be set apart as God's people. What does it mean to be set apart as God's people? And, and how do we see these principles at play from the Old Testament principles that we then can take and apply to our hearts and our lives today and the practice of our lives? And so we think about some of these principles and we spent the last several weeks, we've talked about God's sovereignty, we've talked about God's authority, we've talked about God's judgment last week there in Exodus chapter 12, looking at um, that final 10th plague that came upon the people that then prompted Pharaoh and the Egyptians to send the people out. So we've talked about some different um, principles that come when it, uh, when it comes to being set apart as God's people. And this morning we're going to continue in the narrative and the story of the people of God. So as the story continues on, progresses from Exodus 12 into now where we're at in Exodus 14, the people then leave. Pharaoh comes, he calls Moses and Aaron in and says, "Up, oh, get out of here, get your people, get your children, get your flocks, get your stuff, get out. In the meantime, the Egyptians were looking at the other Hebrews and saying, here, here's our money, here's our jewelry, here's our stuff. And so the Hebrew people plundered the Egyptians. They got sent out. And if you read from chapter 12 down through chapter 14, they leave. And as they're leaving, God gives some instructions to Moses and says, okay, so what you just did, consider the Passover. This is going to be an ongoing ceremony, an ongoing event that you are going to observe. And that's where you see the uh, Passover come into play. And God give those instructions. God also talks to Moses about the consecration of the firstborn, that because you're firstborn, when you put the blood over the doorpost, because your firstborn were saved, now your firstborn are considered holy to God, and there's some instruction that God gives the Hebrew people in that. And then you get down to chapter 14, and we set up the next big saga, especially in our Gentile minds, the next big saga that comes in the story. And it's the crossing of the Red Sea. But there is something that comes before the crossing of the Red Sea that we are going to stop at this morning and ponder on together. So I'm going to pick it up in chapter 14 and in verse 10. And we're going to walk through down through verse 14. So if you read the previous context, the previous scripture in chapter 14, it says the people are moving over 600,000 people. They got their women, they got their children, they got their possessions, they got all this stuff and they're moving. Over half a million people are in a giant migration leaving um, what is northern Egypt and now they're headed south to southeasternly towards the Sinai. And as they're going, you can imagine it's not just as simple as get in the vehicle, we're driving. This is a large undertaking and God is directing them. God has directing them by a cloud during the daytime and a pillar of fire at night. And so as the cloud moves and as the pillar moves, the people move. They are following this direction as they are going. And so the Bible tells us there, um, that on their way, and that is chapter 13, on their way, while they're going, Pharaoh and the Egyptians back at home think to themselves, why'd we do that? We just let our entire, our entire workforce leave. 
Not only do we want our stuff back, but we want our workers back. So the Bible tells you that Pharaoh then changed his mind, decided to go back and recover the people that had left. He gathers up his chariots, he gathers up his army, and he takes off after the Hebrew people. You read in the text that God had brought the people and he had placed them right next to the Red Sea. They had their, uh, they, they, to the one side of them was the Red Sea, to the other side of them was the wilderness. And as the people are gathered, they look off in the horizon and here they see Pharaoh. And they see his chariots and they see his soldiers and they see him coming. And this is where it picks up in chapter 14 and verse 10. And when Pharaoh drew near the people of Israel, drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. As the people of God, the Hebrews, they lift up their eyes. They see Pharaoh coming. They see the army coming. And you see this response in verses 12, or sorry, verses 11, and through verse 12. You see their response. And you can just imagine their response. You can imagine their fear. Maybe more a proper word in our time, you can imagine their worry and their anxiety. You can imagine their worry and their anxiety. The people are backed up to the Red Sea. The army is coming at them. They lifted up their eyes there in verse 10 and then verse 11 and verse 12. They cried out to Moses in, in so many words, paraphrasing it, what is it that you've done? I want you to hear my heart this morning that worry is not new. Anxiety is not new. And I realize that there are a variety of different perspectives and a variety of different backgrounds that are represented this morning. And in no way do I want you to hear from me that worry or anxiety is something that you should feel shameful about or something that you should feel guilty about. I think here in the text, especially in these two verses, the people of God, the Hebrew people, demonstrate, they proclaim, they have all the reason in the world to have worry, to have fear, and to have anxiety. The only thing they had always known was being under bondage to the Egyptian people. The only person in power that they'd ever known had been Pharaoh. Everything they had ever known for all of their lives, for the last so many generations of their life, for over 400 years, everything revolved around the Egyptian culture and the Egyptian people. And now the Egyptians are coming. They don't know why exactly their motivations are. They're scared that they're going to die. They're scared they've come out. They're scared they've angered him. They're scared that they have uh, transgressed against him. And now they are scared. You ever been anxious? Have you ever been worried? You know, we find ourselves in a time chronologically that it seems like there's some key words that keep popping up in our cultural vernacular, like anxiety and fear. 
And I don't want any of us in this room to think these are new things or that these are only things reserved for a certain number of people. But the problem that we are facing as a society today is that increasingly we have individuals that their thoughts are informed by their feelings instead of their thoughts informing their feelings. Do you notice the difference? There is one way where your feelings will inform your thoughts versus your thoughts informing your feelings. And so we're in a culture, in a time, in a day and age that we face this time where we get worried, where we get anxious about something, and then instead of letting our thoughts, our knowledge, the Word of God, then inform how we respond to that anxiety or that worry, we let the anxiety and the worry dictate how we respond to our events and our circumstances. And I think it's very telling when we are in a society in which we are in today in 2023 when there are a large number of people that claim to have created a cure and that cure comes in the form of a therapy or a pill but the problem is is that comes with the illusion of profit. And if I can profit from the cure then I need everyone to need the cure. And if my profit comes from customers, then I need everybody to be a customer. And my concern this morning is, as a society and as a people, we identify in verses 12 through 13 with the anxiety and the worry and the fear. The problem is, is we are running to the wrong cure. And we are running to a cure called therapy or pharmaceuticals or self. And here in this passage, the Hebrew people had every reason in the world to worry. They had every reason in the world to be anxious. They had every reason in the world to cry out to the Lord. That's what it says in the last part of verse 10. They cried out to the Lord. There is nothing wrong with me having worry or anxiety. The problem comes in how I respond to the worry and the anxiety. So this morning, I want us to just sit for a moment on verse 13 and verse 14. Because you see in their notes, treat worry and anxiety with faith. So the people of God are sitting here. Pharaoh and his army are coming. The people of God are worried. They're concerned. All of these things are true, and all these things are reality. But what I want us to look at this morning is, is how does Moses prescribe the cure? And not just how does Moses prescribe the cure, but then how does God prescribe the cure for the worry and the anxiety and the fear the people were facing? Because we are in a, a point in our society that we have a lot of people and I think many people are genuine and many people are honest. We have a lot of people that are struggling with their response and how they deal with the worries and anxieties of life. And we as a church have an opportunity to speak biblically or speak therapeutically. So look with me in the cure, I put it that way, the cure that Moses via God, or God via Moses described. Verse 13, and Moses said to the people, fear not. 
And I don't know about how your Bibles read, but my Bible, there has a, there's a comma right after that. So it's like there's a phrase. Fear not is one phrase. Stand firm is another phrase. And see the salvation of the Lord is another phrase, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you will only have to be silent. The people are losing their mind. The people are scared. The people are worried. The people are just human people and they have concerns and they're crying out saying, oh, help us. What is going on? And what does Moses do? Moses, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses, through the knowledge and the wisdom of God, Moses gives them this instruction in verse 13. If you look at with me, as I look at this text, I see that he gives them three commands, imperatives, if you will, and then there is the result of if they follow these three commands. If you do this, then God will do that. So here in your notes, if you're taking notes or if you're using the notes that are provided on the back of the bulletin, I've given you three cures for concern. Now you may title it a different way. You may say, well, Spence, I don't worry about things, you know, because the Bible says in Philippians 4, be anxious about nothing. So you know what? I'm not anxious about anything. Everybody goes to the dentist, I hope. And I don't know how a single person goes to the dentist and sits down in that chair and that really nice male or female person looks at you and grabs that giant object and says, this might tingle, tell me if it hurts too bad. And, and you know how you have that screeching sound as the drill is penetrating through your jawbone and through, through your ears? Okay, no, no, you all just look at me like, yeah, I don't know what he's talking about. I don't know how anybody sits in a dentist chair and has a cavity addressed without being anxious. Or my nephew Tate this week goes and get his driver's license. I may have a different way of doing it today. I don't think he had to go down to the DMV and have to sit in line and the tester comes out. I think they have a different process in the way they go through it. Back when the dinosaurs and I went and got my driver's license, you go down there to Edmond and you sit out there and the tester comes out, sits down in the car, looks at you and goes, are you ready for this? And I'm like, mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know how anybody does that without being anxious. Or you're sitting there on your wedding day. And I can't speak for you ladies, but I can speak for us guys. So you're at the front of the venue, should be the church, the venue. You're at the front of the you're at the front, and you're standing there, and you've got your groomsmen, pallbearers right there with you. The preacher, the preacher's standing right there, and they look at you. And I don't know, I don't know if, if it's just something that happens to me, but it's like they look at you and you go, are you ready for this? And you're like, ooh. You don't know what you're engaging in. You don't, know what you're, you're, you don't know what you're getting into. You have no idea. And I don't know how any man, and maybe you are here, I don't know how any man sits there, watches her walk up the aisle, and he is not a little bit anxious. So you can call it worry. You can call it anxiety. You can call it concern, whatever you want to call it. What do we do when we are in those seasons of life. So listen to what Moses said to the Hebrew people. First thing he told them to do there in the text in verse 13, he tells them to fear not. I put it there in your notes, evaluate the fear. The reason why I put evaluate the fear is because Moses is not telling them to not have fear at all. Rather, you can look in chapter 14 and verse 31, and he tells them to fear the Lord. That same Hebrew word is there. Rather, what Moses is telling them is evaluate what you are fearful 
of. I put there, as I just write down notes to think about, I ask myself the question, what am I scared of and why am I scared of it? And so that's what Moses is doing here in verse 13. He tells the people, you want to have a proper response to the anxiety and the worry of your day. Evaluate the fear. Why? Because your fear reveals faith. What it is that you are scared of or how it is that you respond to your fear will reveal with what you are having faith in. And so he tells them, evaluate the faith. The people are sitting there, verses 12 or verses 11 and 12. The people are saying, we are scared. What are you scared of, people? We're scared of Pharaoh. And can you imagine Moses looking at the people and going, why are you scared of him? How many days ago was it that he buried his son because the God that has set you apart took his life? How many days ago was it when you saw darkness and hail and locusts and frogs and flies and gnats and water turn to blood because the power of your God who had authority and sovereignty over that Pharaoh? Why are you scared of the world? Because you have more faith in the world than you do in God. So Moses right here in verse 13 says, fear not. Why? Does he, not, does he just say you should not fear anything? No, that's not the idea in the text. The idea was is do not fear Pharaoh. Do not fear the Egyptians. Do not fear the army. And he understands in their attitude of fear, it is revealing their faith. And he also understands that their fear then influences their responses. Some of you like to tease me about snakes. I'm not fearful of snakes. Because I'm worried about a snake swallowing me. Those kind of snakes only happen on the movies. And you shouldn't watch those kind of movies. But snakes are cursed by God. <laughs> and I think we should fear anything that's cursed by God. <laughs> I think we should just flat stay away from it. But you know, that fear will elicit my response. So if you walk in with a snake on a Sunday morning... I will tell you how I will respond. I will walk out. So I have a response based upon my fear. And when it comes to this world, if I am scared of what you think more than I am scared of what God thinks, then I will do what you want more than what God wants. If I am more scared about the approval of my employer than I am approval of my Savior, then I will do what my employer says and not what my Savior says. If I am more scared and more fearful about the opinion of my peers, then I will pander to their likeness and their fickleness and not rest and trust in God. See, my fear will then dictate my response. And so Moses is looking at them there in verse 13, and he says, fear not. Fear can either be a strength or it can be a weakness. And sometimes when we get in those seasons of anxiety or worry, <laughs> they are marked by fear. Fear of the unknown. Fear of what people think. Fear of the trauma that you've had in the past. Fear of a lack of control. Fear of a lack of knowledge of what's going to happen. Fear of fear of fear. And when that time comes, sweet person, I'm asking you, what are you scared of and why are you scared of it? Much of our anxiety and our worry 
and our concern and the debilitating effects of the issues that come are from an attitude of fear. So Moses says, fear not. But then he gives another phrase that follows along there in verse 13, and he says, stand firm. In other words, I put there in your notes, do not run. Now the people, they are backed up against the Red Sea. They are backed up. The only thing is a long swim. And they know they can't swim with all their belongings. They know they can't swim with their kids. They know they can't swim with all their herds. So they are backed up. It's like they are trapped in. They are cornered, if you will. And as they are sitting there and they're watching the army advance and they look at Moses and go, Moses, what should we do? Moses, where are we going to handle this? How are we going to do this? And Moses is looking at them and saying, stand. Don't run. Don't flip out. Don't take off. There are sometimes in the electrical industry that you do some sketchy stuff. I never really saw this much with my dad on plumbing because the worst thing that happens is you spill water. I never really saw that much in the plumbing trade. But sometimes the electrical trade, it get, can get a little sketchy. Because there's sometimes that you do stuff that you're like, I'm not sure if this is going to go well or if this is going to go wrong. And you will see the effect of electricity. It has the power to make things go boom. And the more electricity, the bigger the boom. And the bigger the boom, the bigger the shrapnel and the more area that is covered in it. And we were building a, a big substation. Some of you will understand the lingo. We were building a 138 kV sub. And the lightning arrestor on the high side went boom. And it didn't just go boom. It went boom a lot. And the first impression is, is I'm going to run. There were things in the oil, oil rig. When I was in the oil field, uh, on the drilling rig, there were times that metal would crack or things, sounds would go. And the first thing you want to do is you want to take off. And you want to run. And you just want to run as far away as you could get from it. Some of you in the middle of the night, you hear something go off in the middle of the night. And the first thing you want to do is take off and you want to run. And you want to get as far away from it as possible. So Moses is looking at the people, and the people are backed up, and the people are looking at Moses going, Moses, what should we do? Moses, what should we do? Moses, what should we do? And Moses says, do not run. Stand firm. I want you to remember, brothers and sisters, that God places people in places of preparation. Now, where were the people of God? They were right where God put them. The people had their backs to the Red Sea. They were facing the army and Pharaoh coming at them. And where they were was exactly where God had put them. Oh, the places that we get to in life, sometimes we get in those places and we think, oh, I shouldn't be here. Oh, I need to run. Oh, I need to take off. And we forget that sometimes God puts us, he places us in places of preparation to say, yes, you're going to get fearful. Yes, you're going to become anxious or worrisome. Don't run. I have put you there. They are exactly where God wants them to be. And yet they are looking at the enemy, they are looking at the world, and they are all fixated on the world instead of fixated on God. And so they start having this idea, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Where are we going to go? And Moses is looking at them and saying, do not run. Running is not a spiritual gift. Just because the time gets hard doesn't mean that we take off. Just because that relationship doesn't gets hard doesn't mean we take off. Just because that job doesn't always make us feel giddy at the end of the day doesn't mean we take off. We have way too many divorces in this culture today because people are leaving before God has given permission to leave. 
We have way too many people and way too many churches out there because way too many people have gotten churches that have not stayed when God said to stay. Running is not a spiritual gift, and yet our faith is strengthened through testing. The people were right where God wanted them to be so that they could see the power and the promises and the faithfulness of God. They were right where God wanted them to be so that they might know who God is. And sometimes we come to those times of testing, we come to those times of trial, and instead of us waiting for God to do what God has said he will do, we decide that we're going to run, we're going to bail, we're going to pull the eject handle, whatever you want to call it, we're going to run from the situation instead of trusting in God. If God has put you there, don't run. Do not run. Well, Spence, you don't have any idea the burden that I have. I don't have to. I don't have to know what you're feeling, what you're feeling. <laughs> I don't have to know your emotions for God to know what He wants you to do in response. You see, sometimes we have this attitude, well, because you don't know what I'm going through and you don't know how it feels, then that gives me liberty to do whatever I want to do. Except for God's word. Where do we see in God's word that it says that as long as someone knows what you're going through, then you are responsible for obedience. But as long as no one else understands, you can make it up as you go. We don't see that in God's word. And rather, God's word tells us that Jesus came to this earth and he lived as a man and he was tempted just as we are, and yet he did not sin. Translation, Jesus knows exactly what it's like to be you, and yet he was faithful. So he says there, Moses says, evaluate the fear. Do not run. Can you imagine when you go back through the pages of Scripture, all the names, all the examples, all the models of people that we have, those that ran and those that didn't run. Just think about some ones that didn't run. God comes to Noah in Genesis chapter 6 and says, Noah, there's eight people in the face of the earth that, are, that I consider to be blameless and upright. The rest of them, they're in rank rebellion. I'm going to wipe them out. I want you to build a boat big enough for your family and for all the animals, and you're going to spend, I, I, I lean towards, you're going to spend 120 years building this boat. Everybody's going to make fun of you. And at the end of the 20 years, the rain's going to come, and you're going to go in the boat, and you're going to be saved. Can you imagine Noah looking at God and going, God, I, I got other things planned. My calendar's full. 120 years, you mean block out 120 years to faithfully serve you? Uh, no, see, I'm supposed to retire coming up next year. I've got something else planned. I don't have the money. I don't have the resources. No, 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 no. Noah didn't run. Think about Daniel. And he's there in the Babylonian captivity. And the enemies know that Daniel's habit is to pray three times a day in his devotion to God. And so they convince the ruler to write a decree to outlaw what Daniel is going to try to do, and yet then Daniel does it anyways, and he finds himself in the lion's den because he refused to run. And then we see other testimonies of people that did run. And we understand that there are times that we see people running. There are times that you and I may have run. But brothers and sisters, what God has called us to do is to stand firm, to trust in him. So it says there, Exodus 14, verse 13, he says, fear not, stand firm. And then here's the third cure that Moses gives. Look up. Look up. 
Moses says in the text in verse 13, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. That idea, that Hebrew word there that is translated in this English translation as see, it's used almost 1,300 times in the Hebrew text. And it has a variety of different translations, has a variety of different meanings. And so some different meanings that other ways that it has been translated is, is to understand or to examine or to test. It's as if Moses is looking at the people and going, look, understand, see that God is going to provide salvation. And instead of looking at Pharaoh, and instead of looking at the Egyptians, and instead of looking at the water, and instead of looking at your problems, and instead of looking all around, or instead of looking and going, what am I going to do? Maybe you should look up and say, what is God going to do? So many times we find ourselves in moments of trials or testing, and instead of us looking up, we start to look in. Where do you get that from, Spence? Well, look back up in verse 11. Look back up in verse 11. And let me just kind of read you how this narrative, you might have missed it when I read through it the first time. Listen to how the people are responding. Verse 11. <clears throat> notice the times that you refers to the people, they or us, and notice the times it refers to Moses as you. So notice the object and notice the focus of their concern. It says in verse 11, they, the people, they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. What is the object? The object is not what is God going to do or how is God going to provide or how God is going to bring about salvation. The object is, is Moses and them. We are not the answer to the problems in this world. I know you're awesome. And I know you're smart. And I know in the evening times or when you're away, you go to the coffee shop, you sit there, and I know you can solve all the world's problems in two cups of coffee. I got it. But the loving truth of the matter is, is that you and I are not the answer. If we were the answer, then we wouldn't need Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Not you, not me. Not a cure that comes from a prophet. And when I mean prophet, P-R-O-F-I-T. Not a cure that comes from a prophet. Not some self-help methodology. The cure comes from Jesus. And our response to Jesus. And the people here in this text, God said, or Moses said, look up to God. They were looking at themselves and they were looking at the people around them and they weren't looking to God. And so what is Moses saying? Moses says, remember what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. That's what he says in verse 13. When you do this, you fear not, you stand firm, you see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. There is a condition. This is what God is going to do. And then for the Egyptians whom you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Moses is saying, do you understand? When you look up, you start to see things. What You start to see what God is doing. 
I'll tell you what I do. And kind of the idiot, my phrase, my terminology. When my fat is in the fire, I start trying to find my own way out of the problem. I start trying to find my own solution. I've got a struggle going on. I don't need you because I don't want you to know that I don't have it all together. I don't want you to know that I don't have it all figured out. I don't want you to know that I've got just as many problems as the next person. I don't need you. I'm going to figure it out over here, and I'm just going to deal with it, and I'm just going to white-knuckle it through it. And I'm going to tell you that that is increasingly happening. I shouldn't say increasingly. It happens a lot with visible people, especially in church ministries. Because there's this idea that those visible people, that they don't have any problems, that their life is perfect, and their marriage never has an argument, and their kids are always, oh, honorable father, and they have all of these things going on, and yet you have these people in visibility that are going, well, I can't let you see the problems, and so you sit over here, and you just knuckle down, and you just say, I'm going to figure it out. And in doing so, I look here, and I look here, and I don't look here. And Moses says to the people, when you find yourself in a position, and you find yourself in a struggle, you find yourself in this condition, what do you need to do? Look up. God has, God is, and God will be faithful. And what Moses is wanting to remind them is, is that we look to what we believe in. So if I believe the help is in the bottom of a bottle, then I'm going to race to the bottom of the bottle. If I think my help is in a certain style of music that helps me feel better, then I will go to that style of music that helps me feel better. If I think that my hope and my feelings are helped in the bottom of an ice cream carton, then I will go to the bottom of an ice cream carton. See, all of these things that we put around our lives, we do this because these make us feel good, they make us feel better, and we think we feel good and we feel better, we are better. And that's the danger of alcohol and mind-honoring substances because is when you get sober, your problems are still there. And until you've dealt with the problem or the cause of the problem, you're still going to have the problem. So if the problem is anxiety, then the problem is worry, and the problem is a lack of trust in God, even when you try to mask it with so many other actions or therapeutics, when you get done, you still don't trust God the way you should. And you still have a lack of fear in God. And so he says, look up. Look. We look to what we believe in. He says, Moses says, instead of looking at me, or instead of looking at you, look to God. See the salvation of the Lord. See that God has sent his son to die for you. See that God has sent his son because he loves you. See that God has come and sent his son and form of a man to live us in this life, to die on the cross, to make the way that you might be forgiven and freed from the bondage of constantly being entrapped and always thinking that you are the answer. Look to God. God has provided the salvation. God has provided the hope. God has provided the cure. And it is in Jesus. Now you may sit back and you may go, well, you know what, Spence? That sounds all good, but I'm going to tell you there are things in my life that can't be solved with looking to God. That's not true. That is not true. If there are things 
that are outside the control and the authority of God, then God isn't God. And if there are solutions and hopes and cures that God cannot provide or God cannot sustain, then God is not God. I'm not saying that God can't use people. I'm not saying that God can't use His Word. I'm not saying that there aren't tools that God uses on the face of this earth to minister to people and to help people and to encourage people. All those things are true. But if we get to the point in our lives that says, I need something other than God because God is not enough, then we have forgotten who God is. And the problem is not the thing that we're dealing with. The problem is our view of God. So Moses says, look up. Look, look to God. Stop looking at the bookshelf in the self-help section. Stop looking in the pharmaceuticals. Stop looking in the mirror. Stop looking on social media. Stop looking and the words and the ideas and the advice of other people. Stop looking at this world. This world is not the answer. God is the answer. So look to God. And when we find ourselves, we don't know what to do. We find ourselves in seasons of great burden. And we just feel overwhelmed by the circumstances of life. We find ourselves with such a weight on our shoulders that we, it's sometimes hard to breathe. And we say, God, I don't know how much more I can take of this. God, I don't know how much more I can handle of this. God, I, I, I don't know what I've done to deserve this. Oh, God, you got to do something about this. And we find ourselves with our back against the wall. And the enemy is pressing in. we find ourselves responding in one way or the other. Will I evaluate my fears? Will I not run from the things that God has put in front of my life? And will I choose to look to God? Sometimes we come to the book of Exodus and we just assume it's a story about the Hebrew people 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 plus years ago, and we just assume, well, that's then and that's not now. We just assume that there's nothing in there for us. We're reading a story about a history book. But, oh, brothers and sisters, there's so many things that we can learn and that we can glean from how God responds to the people and how the people respond to God. And the people here in this text, the people here in this story, oh, they were in a fit, and they had the right to be. Oh, they had a lot of stuff on their minds, and they had the right to be. They were concerned, they were worried, they were anxious. All of these things are true, and all these things are a part of the reality. And I'm not taking anything away, and I'm not saying shame on you, or you shouldn't do that, or how what a terrible person you could be. What I want you to see this morning is when they were in that circumstance, how did they respond? They didn't fear man, they feared God. 
They didn't run from God. They ran to God. And they didn't look and let their problems dictate their response. They looked to God and let God dictate their response. And church, there have been days, there are days and there will be days, that these same challenges will face us. And the question is, how are we going to respond to the pressures of life? So how do we apply this? Kind of this application grid, three core values of the church, build families, teach the Bible, be the church. So how do we take a passage like this, a narrative like this, how do we take this then and apply it to the life of the church today? Just three quick things that I want to apply and then we're going to bring this all to a conclusion. First thing I want to remind you of is that our families are going to fear something. Our families will fear something. We talk about building families and what building families look like and how do we build families. Well, one of those things is, is we understand our families will fear something. And I'm not talking about a paralyzing fear. I'm not talking about one of those fears that you can't get out of bed because you're scared that the whole floor is lava and it will burn you. I'm not talking about an irrational fear. I'm talking about a fear of God or a fear of man or a fear of failure or a failure, fear of people's opinions. Or whatever the fear is, our families will fear something. Either they will fear failure in the eyes of the world or they will fear God. Our families will fear something. So why not teach them to fear God? And additionally, God's word shows us where to stand. There's a lot of attacks that are coming at us. A lot of attacks, they may be subtle. They may be overt. They may be hidden. Attacks that are coming. Just in the last few days, Minnesota passed a law signed into effect by the governor that gives minor children the right for mutilation and transitional operations from one gender to the other. Minnesota in the recent days. And if the parent refuses that medical care for that minor, then their version of DHS has the legal ability and legal right to come in and remove the child from the parent's home if the parent will not provide that for the minor child. That's crazy, Spence. No, that's our society. That is the culture in which we're living in. And this woke garbage, this unbiblical, godless, Luciferian philosophies are here in Oklahoma. And they are coming for our children. They are coming to groom our children. They are coming to convert the children. And they are coming to lead the children away. And they will do it in social media. They will do it in cartoons. They will do it in the classroom. They will do it on the sports field. They will do it. We have this happening right here today. In our current time, these things are taking place. And we might sit there and go, well, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to respond? Where are we supposed to stand? All these things. And I'm trying to encourage us this morning God's word tells us where to stand. And the only way we will know, the only way we will know how to stand or where to stand is if we know God's word. 
That is why it is vital, it is paramount that we know God's word. If we do not know God's word, we do not know where God is and where we should be. And this last one. He says, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord. Our families will fear something. God's word shows us where to stand. And the last thing, and then I'll be done, proclaim the salvation of the Lord. Now, Moses is sitting here in the text, and he says to the people, the Hebrew people, see the salvation of the Lord. And the salvation of the Lord is going to be represented here in the next week or so, that Moses is going to spread out the staff, the water is going to part, the people are going to go through the Red Sea, <clears throat> on dry land, the water's going to come back in, swallowing up favor in the Egyptians. I'm just going to tell you that's the, the spoiler alert for you, okay? But that thing's going to happen, and they're going to see the power of God at work, all right? And they're going to see the love of God in their lives, and they're going to see God be able to do this. They're going to be like, whoo, whoo, God is awesome. God is perfect. And in Exodus 15, you see this rejoicing, like, oh, that's great, that's great, that's great. And then Exodus 16, they go back to someone, where's God at? And the cycle that goes back and forth and back and forth. So Moses says, look, you're going to see the salvation of the Lord. Now we think, okay, in 2023, can we say that? Is God going to part the Deep Fork River? Is God going to go down to Bell Cow Lake and he's going to part the lake and we're going to walk across on dry land? No, but how do we see the salvation of the Lord? Through Jesus Christ. God has sent us salvation. God has provided for us salvation. God has shown us salvation. God has showed his love for us and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. We can proclaim that salvation to a world. We can proclaim it loud. And we don't have to pro proclaim our preferences. We don't have to proclaim our opinions. We don't have to proclaim politics. We don't have to proclaim ideologies, we can just proclaim the Lord. And church, if we're going to be the church, then we have an opportunity, and I would dare say a mandate, to proclaim the salvation of the Lord. But here's what my concern is for us this morning. That many of us aren't in a position to proclaim or follow Jesus Christ. Because possibly for some of us, our emotions and our feelings are informing our thoughts instead of our thoughts informing our emotions and our feelings. And I think that I would be remiss. I think, that it'd be, I, I think I would be naive to just assume every single person in this room that I'm the only one in the room that has worries or anxious, or concerns. I think, if we're all being honest, Satan uses those tools frequently on us to control us and to disarm us. So I wonder this morning if there's someone in this room today that needs to take a few moments to evaluate the fears that are gripping them. If somebody here in this room this morning needs to take a time to say, you know what, I'm where God wants me to be and I'm not running regardless of how big the bad boy enemy gets in front of me. Or maybe there's someone here this morning that needs to just take a moment and say, God, you see the things that I'm dealing with. But instead of me dwelling on the things that I'm dealing with, I'm going to dwell on you and let you take care of the things that I'm dealing with. Maybe you're here this morning 
And you've never taken that time. You've never made that time. You have never come to that point that you've recognized that you needed to be saved and what this salvation looks like. Maybe this morning is a day that you need to come and say, God, here I am. I don't know where you might be, but I want to give you a time to respond in faith this morning. You bow your heads with me.